right, welcome back to Firewall. I am your host, Bradley Tusk. This is a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Uh, we're going to hit a bunch of topics today. Mobile voting, uh, the Gotham Book Prize, the Fox Dominion settlement, uh, Biden kind of administrative policies on uh, natural gas plants and immigration, uh, old movie stars, morning habits, succession. So quite a bit to get through. Uh, Hugo, why don't we just start doing it? Can we start actually with succession? Sure. I know you put that at the end, but because just before uh, we started recording Bradley, we, we were talking about last night's episode, which Bradley didn't like that much, but I liked it. It was well, hold episode on. You, five. Your friend wrote it. I know, but I don't have to like everything he does. No, but you and can't say on the podcast that you didn't like it. Okay, but I, I am saying that I liked it. <laughs> right, anyway, sure. the, the the question I had for Bradley, which we're now, um, uh, is so they're they're in this sort of merger negotiation. It's all really high stakes, and the and the and the, the, the three siblings are 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 negotiating with the. Is he he's Swedish or, or is he? I know they're in he's Norway. He's Swedish. They're, right, in Norway they're in Norway for some corporate retreat. Right, but he's Swedish. So the thing that is one of the remarkable aspects of the of the episode was that. They are just such colossal pricks to each other. Like the the two, the the CEO of the of the acquiring company, and then and then yeah, the three massive. siblings. Yeah. They just talk to each other in this. Now, obviously, it's for dramatic purposes. It's not meant to be like a documentary about how like corporate mergers happen or corporate acquisitions happen. But what I was asking Bradley was like, does it ever remotely get that antagonistic at, at in when when it comes down to like the right. you know getting so the number? L- and all l- that? Let me quickly analyze it from the story of the show itself and, and right. then the reality of it. So the, I, I suspect the reason why Shiv and Kendall and Roman are so bombastic in their conversation and their speech in general is two reasons, three reasons. One, the writers are trying to make it a good show, which they do, yeah. despite last night. Oh, um, come on. It was mediocre. <laughs> um, two, they're copying their dad, right? Right. And they're right. trying to be like him. The whole point of the show is that they're trying to be like him and they don't know how, they to, don't know do how to do it. They don't know how to do it. Right. And then the third is um, that when you don't have the substance behind you, you know, you have to kind of resort to bravado and they don't even if they have it, they don't believe they have it. They're all the whole show is about them sort of doubting themselves and. I don't think any of us are quite clear on their competence either, to be honest. I think uh, we are clear on their nah, competence, right? They might you be think- a little better than you think, but I think they're so fucked up uh, that one way to hide that, is, especially Roman, is, is to talk the way they do. So that's the show itself. But in reality, Hugo's question to me uh, before we started taping was, um, do people really talk to each other like that in business deals? And my experience is no. So my main perspective here is venture capital, so maybe corporate M&A is, is different. Um, but if anything, I have found VC to be sort of Hollywood-esque in the sense that people are overly praiseworthy and overly nice and kind of f- very fake. And it would actually be better if people were a little more candid. That doesn't mean you have to speak like, like Kendall or Roman Roy to do that. Um, but I think that if anything, there's a, a problem in VC where people just are... W- Blowing sunshine all the yeah, time. Yeah, all the time, which then makes it sort of hard to actually get to reality. So I, it's a world that's a little soft. I remember once very, very, very early on going to a meeting at a very prominent, very prominent fund on Sand Hill Road. I won't name them. Um, and they were telling me about their kind of philosophy. And they were like, you know, if you're with us, we love you, this, this, that. And if you're, but if you fuck us, you're, you're, you're dead. 
So after the meeting, I said to the person who set it up, so what does being dead actually mean, right? You know, and they're like, oh, you won't be invited to the next cocktail party. I'm like, exactly, right? right? So like... So man who doesn't go to cocktail parties. Yeah. So, right. price um, so look, I think that in politics, people do speak much more coarsely than they do, certainly in, in venture capital. Um, with that said, still, the way that the people speak to each other on that show... You'd have to have a serious confrontation, right, to, to, to speak to someone else that way. Usually all of the sort of, um, you know, really vulgar kind of usage of, of words in politics is between people on the same team hyping each other up about how tough they're going to be and we're going to rip this guy a new asshole or whatever it is. Um, and in reality, you know, when you're sitting down to negotiate the budget itself— it's pretty rare that that kind of language comes up because if it is, the negotiation's not working very well, right? right. So uh, occasionally, is that kind of mentality necessary to move from point A to point B? Yes, but but pretty rarely in my experience. Okay, let's um, let's talk about mobile voting. Um, we're not going to spend a tremendous amount of time on it, but there is a white paper that has been produced. What's, what is the white paper? What's yeah, in there? So Why it was, should people uh, read it? Jocelyn Bacaro and her team at the Mobile Voting Project uh, put it together. It's really, really smart, and it explains all the different constituencies for whom mobile voting um, might really make their day-to-day -day life and ability to vote, in terms of their ability to vote, a lot better and easier, and so how we can meaningfully produce participation from groups that participate currently less than others um, by making mobile voting available to them. Um, I would say this. If you're a regular listeners podcast and you're interested in mobile voting, just go to mobilevoting.org. The, the white paper is up there on the, on the home site, uh, homepage, and check it out. But I think to the extent that these issues interest you, it will give you a much more in-depth sense of all of the different groups that we think um, we can try to work with in order to bring on support for the movement. Um, Gotham Book Prize news. Yeah, so it got New York Times today. Is that James up today? Barron. I looked it's for it this up. morning. It's up right now. Yeah, oh, yeah. went up this morning. I'm going to look and read it while you're talking. Uh, so James Barron, who writes the New York Today column, uh, Corey gave him the exclusive and announced that uh, John Wood Sweet for the book A Sewing Girl's Tale, or The Sewing Girl's, Girl's Tale, I think, and um, Sadiq Fafana for Stories from the Tennis Downstairs are the co-winners of the 2022 Gotham Book Prize, meeting the best book published in 2022. Um, the reason we had co-winners is we had 10 jurors, and there was a 5 to 5 tie. Uh, and so Howard Impressive and I, you didn't put your thumb on the scale. Uh, or, or did you? Or were you split? Your, we don't have to say. We, I know you won't. We're not going to talk about this. Um, <laughs> but Howard, basically, it was it was close enough that I Howard and I realized that if we threw a little more money into the pot, we could recognize and reward two writers. And so I mean, they're of, both amazing books. So yes. it's like so, a, right. So instead of it being a $50,000 prize to one winner, there's 35 each to, to two winners. Nice. Um, yeah. And it, look, it was also exciting. because I think it was the first time that my novel was mentioned uh, in an article. Oh, my um, God. I see it right here. Yeah. Tusk's, uh, so Tusk's novel, Obvious in Hindsight, is about a campaign to legalize flying cars in New York as well as Austin, Texas, and Los Angeles. Yeah, the problem is to so scroll up like a paragraph okay. or two right. where I insult my own novel. I, I'm, I'm a little worried that, that Gretchen and Adriana, my publishers, are going to be angry with me. Oh, my God, you do. Yeah. That's, I think that's I think that's very on brand though, Bradley. I think you just you just you, you just say what's on your mind. So what I said, I don't remember. I don't have it in front. I'll of it, say it's yeah. I have a novel coming out in the fall, Bradley. You're not you're not retracting the quote. You're just no, not retracting. It's, it's honest. Right. I, I just feel like maybe I shouldn't have said it. I have a novel coming out in the fall, and the worst thing about my novel is all the characters sound the same. Actually, I think that's not true. Right, you have read it yeah. multiple times. Yeah. Um, 
So the reason why I particularly love stories from the tenants uh, downstairs, although I highly recommend the Sewing Girl's Tale as well, um, is that Sadiq was able to write in all of these different voices, right? So you have someone young, someone old, someone middle-aged, male, female, uh, gay, straight, all of these different perspectives, you know, and he's able to make each of them sound totally unique and different um, and then weave it all together. And I just love that book. And I, I thought that was so impressive. And I think one of the reasons why I was so impressed by it and was pushing hard for it in inside the jury um, is because I, I know my own writing and I know where I'm, I'm pretty good and where I struggle. And I think one area where at least I worry about it a lot, maybe we were aware, I was aware of this enough and people like Hugo were aware of enough to help me sort of make sure I didn't fall into this trap, but is, you know, I think my dialogue is, is good in the sense that I have a good ear for how people talk. I think where it at least runs into trouble, although maybe we've corrected for it, is a lot of my characters sound very similar in the way that they talk, right? And that's not good writing. And so I, maybe we fixed it, but even if we fixed it, it is one one millionth as good as how Sadiq Fafana does it in Stories from Tennis Downstairs. So uh, congrats to him are, and to John Woodsweet. Are we going to have both of them on the podcast? I know. Yeah, okay. I think so. I know, I know it's being set up. They're May 3rd, if anyone listening wants to come to this, at P&T Nitware, 180 Orchard Street, which is where we're recording from right now. We were having a ceremony to honor uh, Sadiq and John, and uh, anyone is welcome to come. And I think somewhere in that time frame, we're going to try to also sit down with them and do a podcast. Okay, the Dominion Fox settlement last week. Yes, he, here's the point, and Bob and I so are working. Maybe on you a, should say sure. a little something about what it is. Just sure. For, and, and I'm, I'm just, it's what, what I want to say is that beyond me, is, is that Bob and I are writing a column about this right now. But sometimes when I write, I know exactly what I think, right? And I'm like, it just pours out of me in 15, 20 minutes. There's 700 words, and we're pretty much good to go, right? right? This one, the point I want to make. So what happened is for those of you who aren't aware, I think most listeners of this podcast probably are, uh, Dominion, which is a voting company, sued Fox News because Fox News made all of these claims about that the election was rigged and Dominion's machines were broken and they were corrupt and all of these things that were blatantly untrue and Fox knew them to be untrue. And, those ample and had evidence. all those amazing texts. Yeah, there was the ample evidence within Fox's texts and emails showing that they knew it to be untrue. And so they settled for, I think, I don't know, $727 million or something like that. Um, I guess here's the point that Bob and I are sort of thinking through, which is it's great that Fox was held accountable. And by the way, this is not me as some like, oh, I hate Fox News. It's funny, when I saw Abby's um, performance of Fiddler on the Roof the other weekend, there was someone sitting two seats down from me who was probably in his 20s, and he was just going off, like no one even asked him about it, like before the show, about different Fox News hosts. And it was like, you're the most, like it was, our, we were talking about asking about performative liberalism. Right, like right. it was this guy, like was just like the absolute fucking epicenter of it. Um, I'm not that, right? Like I don't watch Fox News, but I also don't watch MSNBC or CNN for that matter. Um, so it's not that I have an instinctive hatred of them, but I do think obviously that anything that tears at the underlying fabric of our democracy and the validity of our elections is incredibly dangerous. Dangerous, and someone who has put a lot of time and money into our voting systems and everything else. Uh, clearly, that matters a lot to me. But here's the question: It's not so much EA Fox was was held accountable, which is what you see most of the kind of left cheering. It's why isn't Facebook accountable? Why isn't Instagram accountable? Why isn't Twitter accountable? Why isn't TikTok accountable? You have all these platforms where untruths and misinformation are spread constantly, all day, every day 
undermining the validity of our elections, undermining confidence in our system, undermining trust in our government. And all of these platforms make more and more money because the more toxicity there is, the more disagreement there is, the more eyeballs, which leads to more clicks, which leads to more advertising revenue, which is how all of these companies make their money. And so they are incentivized to promote misinformation. They are incentivized to make things uh, as divisive as possible. And look, there is the First Amendment, but when you are knowingly promoting things through your, you know, through your algorithms um, that clearly are untrue, uh, and I am sure that the Facebook and Instagram and Twitter feeds were all promoting the Fox News algorithms to some users uh, about Dominion at the time, why shouldn't you be accountable as well? I think we have a, a law that listeners are tired of hearing me talk about called Section 230 of the 1996 Telecommunications Decency Act, which I'm sure all of you have read multiple times and recite by heart. <laughs> um, and it says that internet platforms are not liable for the content posted by their users. Um, that was actually a very necessary law at the time to spur the creation of the internet itself. It has now gone way beyond its, its useful date or whatever that sell-by date. Um, and instead has created a world where the models are perverse so that all of the incentives for the companies are to promote the most toxic content they possibly can that leads to everything from, you know, undermining democracy to young girls, you know, becoming bulimic because they're encouraged to do so on Instagram. And there's no, right now, penalty for the platforms for, for promoting this and taking advantage of it. So much in the same way that Fox was rightly held accountable for their behavior, I would argue that, that the platform shouldn't be given a free pass um, and that by repealing Section 230, which is something that both parties have talked about, President Biden mentioned in his State of the Union, um, but hasn't actually happened yet, would, would, would really sort of help solve this problem. So if, if, um, if say, there was a, a, a class action suit brought by uh, parents of bulimic children um, against one of the platforms, it would just be immediately thrown out because of Section 230? There'd be yeah, no basis just, for proceeding. Well, they would say, yes, you can sue the person who created the content, right? So, like, if I defame you on Twitter, you can sue me, right. but— 99 times out of 100, the person who does the defaming doesn't have any assets to really recover in the first place, right? But you can't do Twitter, which is actually where the deep pockets are. And Twitter or, or used to be. Or used to be, right. <laughs> Twitter doesn't care if you sue me. It doesn't affect them economically. But if all of a sudden they're facing multi-billion dollar judgments, um, that will change their behavior. And so the Fox settlement was very good. But to me, it just points out yet again um, how much more there is to do in trying to really clean up our information. Do you think this will have any effect on Fox? I mean, how the... And it's hard, right? Because on just, one hand, nobody wants to spend 720 By the way, that was before their legal fees and everything else. It's probably right. close to a billion by the time it's all said and done. Um, but their entire business model is based on bombast, right? So I, I think what it will do is, and this is a good thing, I think at the margins, when something is patently false, rather than just egging each other on to keep making it worse and worse, somebody, the general counsel or someone will pull back and people will actually listen because they don't want to be the person whose email costs Murdoch, you know, a billion dollars or whatever it right. is. Um, now we're going to talk about Biden and the sort of administrative. Uh, yeah. Two, two really good things over the weekend. Um, there was a, a rule that's being proposed out of the EPA that says that all natural gas fired power plants will have to have carbon capture technology by a date certain sometime in the 2030s. I, I forgot when. Um, that would really also go a long way towards curbing emissions. And I do believe, and I've talked about this on podcast before, carbon capture technology is sort of our best hope for really not just 
not further exacerbating the damage to the climate, but actually trying to reverse some of it as well by taking carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, and then there was another thing that they did where they are basically using a, a loophole in immigration law to say that people are coming in on kind of amnesty, kind of humanitarian grounds from whether it's the Sudan or Venezuela or Ukraine, um, and using that to increase the number of immigrants. I think that's fucking great because the reality is, and the article was in the Times today was very clear about this, um, our economy has a serious problem in that we don't have enough people to do the work, right? So we have a few problems. One is we're actually kind of a small country for, for our GDP and size and everything else, about 350 million people compared to India and China are both almost five times that, right? Um, that's number one. Number two, because we have such an advanced economy, people born in this country basically don't want to do most of the really, really service-level difficult jobs. And people who are immigrants uh, are the people who are usually willing to come here and do that because they're trying to build a better life for themselves and for their families. So we lack people to do the work. We also have this huge disparity right now where the population is aging considerably. So you have this massive generation of baby boomers who are retiring, will need Social Security, Medicare, everything else. They're no longer making money, paying taxes into the system. Instead, they're sucking money out of the system. Um, and you need young people to pay taxes, basically, to, to make up the shortfall. And one way to do that is just by bringing more people into this country. And so um, we need millions and millions and millions of more people in this country. We need millions and millions and millions of more immigrants because, you know, yeah, is there occasionally an immigrant who comes in and joins MS-13 and does something bad? Sure. But that's like almost never. The vast, vast majority of immigrants are hardworking, decent, honest people who just want to build a better life for their family. As a first-generation American, I can speak to this pretty directly. Um, they are the people you want in your country. They are the people you want in your economy. And so while maybe the Biden administration is sort of stretching the boundaries of this rule a little bit by sort of declaring everything humanitarian when it's really, in some ways, in my view, economic, um, I think it's great. And then two other points. One is they're using administrative rules really, really well in general to try to make progress on different issues. Now, I understand that President DeSantis or Trump or whoever it could be in 2025 could roll them all back. Um, Christie, like, Chris Christie. Chris, is that, oh, you, you were the one that brought that up. Yet. Who brought that up yesterday? Was that you or Jamie? I didn't bring it up yesterday. I brought it up, I, I think I put it in a text. I was watching morning. the Knicks game with uh, Hugo and Jamie and some other people yesterday, and yeah, the the people were quite unhappy with the Republican field. And some, someone did suggest Chris Christie. But well, he, he apparently is running. There, Mark Leibovich did a piece in The Atlantic right. on him, like having lunch with him, and he was super angry about being asked about Trump all the time. Yeah, whatever. Um, I, I was going to put you in charge had, of Chris he, Christie's he had, campaign. He had his moment in 2012. I, 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 I cut you off in the middle, um, but anyway. So anyway, the point is this. There, yes, laws through Congress are better than administrative rules because it is harder to repeal an act of Congress than it is to repeal a, a, a rule or a regulation. I get that. With that said, we live in a world where effectively passing anything through Congress is synonymous to a miracle. And so that can't be our regular strategy for how to achieve progress, which means effectively it has to turn to administrative action, rulemaking, and everything else. And I will say one of the reasons why I think this president is really underrated is for all the same reasons that people kind of don't like them. He's slow. He's old. He's boring. He's kind of doddering. All that stuff. He, or at least the people he's hired, know the system and they know how to use it. And so if they say, hey, we want to be able to reduce, you know, uh, our, our greenhouse gas emissions, um, even without having to deal with Congress, they know what to do. We want to be able to increase the number of workers in the economy, even without Congress changing the immigration laws, they know what to do, right? And so I would argue that this is a president that might have the greatest disparity between his actual effectiveness and especially on, on 
the environment, he's transformational, right? So if the same policies that Biden has had, so the carbon capture was discussed from the, from the natural gas plants, the new rules around electric vehicles, all the billion dollars in the Infrastructure and Inflation Reduction Act um, for climate, everything else that they're doing, if JFK or Barack Obama or Justin Trudeau or Emmanuel Macron or some young dynamic leader, this was their agenda, it would be seen and, and celebrated as revolutionary, transformational, incredible, and because Biden is slow and old and boring, it's just sort of either laughed at or ignored. But the reality is um, he may be having the best term as president since Clinton in 1992 to 1996. Okay, two questions about that um, related. But first of all, didn't Obama do tons of sort of like administrative like yeah, regulatory he, stuff? He, I mean, he did, but he was, was criticized for it pretty— He was criticized because the Republicans were criticized. Okay, him. but wait, related to that then— could either of these be useful, used against him effectively in, in 2024? Do you think these are issues where the Republicans can really gain some headway? All right. So on the first one, the problem with Obama is not that he didn't do this. It's that, at least from what I recall, he mm -hmm. did it too late. I right? see. So okay. like, he tried and tried and tried to work with Congress. He oh, got yeah. the ACA through. All those golf outings Obviously and transformational. That, right? And then spent years just sort of failing. And then at the end said, oh, let's just charge this up administratively. But the thing is this, like it got overturned by Trump relatively quickly. If he on day one said, here's how we're going to get shit done. We're going to try Congress, but we know that's a pretty low odds scenario. So we're all through administrative. You at least have had eight years for these things to happen, right? Mm -hmm. And to create progress and to, and, and to get stuff done. And instead he waited till the end where it had very little impact. Biden's not waiting, right? He's doing it now. And I think that's really different and bold. Um, no, I, I think if anything, uh, all the environmental stuff will help Biden because I think it will be, make younger voters more likely to turn out. I think independents believe that we need to do something about climate change. And I think most Republicans under the age of 40 do as well. And so, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, the people who will be scandalized by the radical transformation of the you know, oil and gas industry are the people who aren't voting for the Democrat anyway. Old movie stars. Yeah. Um, we were uh, talking about a, a column in Puck um, by Matt Bellany. That was it was based on a survey of. Could you stop? So Puck, are you? Do you still consider yourself a regular reader? Um, yes, I'm struggling with it. Okay. I'm at the point where I'm starting to almost consider sending it to spam. Okay, it's but too insidery also, you, for me. You could cancel it. Too insidery for you. Yeah. I mean, I will say that a lot of the corporate, like I don't care who the head of like you know, CNN is or like what the guy at the Discovery is doing. Yeah, D I, David Zaslov's <laughs> daily comings and goings. What the fuck do I need to know all that I for? I agree. I don't love that. But I think Matt Bellany is excellent on, on Hollywood. And I yeah. feel like it's he the is, only He thing. is really good. His yeah. podcast is good. Yeah. They're individual reporters, Teddy Schleifer, William Cohn. Like, there's a lot of really good people there. I but. feel... I, but... It's getting to be too, it, too inside baseball. In the way that, like, last week, I couldn't listen to Bill Simmons' podcast because you get to a point of breaking down the Nuggets-Timberwolves game to the point where I just don't care what the X's and O's of the third quarter were, and I end up stopped listening. Right. This is kind of a, a different version of that. Okay. Um, noted. Um, <laughs> but that uh, has nothing to do with the sexual topics. <laughs> so they, they, there was a survey of the movie stars that made people most likely go to the theater— and it was this kind of crazy list. I mean, it's like a Biden era list. Yeah, exactly. Like just these really, like two of them were in their 80s. I guess that's Harrison Ford and Morgan Freeman or made the top 20. No, he, I went, th so I made a list after you sent this to me of the it four is? movies that I've seen most recently. Okay. So uh, I think I saw them all with Lyle, five, uh, four with Lyle, one of my own. I saw um, Air, 
I okay. saw Creed three. I saw um, John Wick four. Right. I saw um, Cocaine Bear. Okay. And I saw Ant Man three or whatever it was. Okay, five. Right. Um, of those movies. Morgan Freeman and Keanu Reeves, I think, were the only two people in any of those five movies. So at least based on, I am an active spender in the movie-going economy, right? right? Like, I like going to the movies. It's a good thing to do with my kids. Um, so, like, I'm the target audience in some ways because I'm spending money. And I just paid to see five movies, and only two of them were, and they were sort of two lower players on that list. Yeah, no, Morgan Freeman is actually a little surprising but, to see him on there. But um, uh, so what, what's, your, through, what's your point with that? Read, read off the top 10. Okay. Tom Cruise, Dwayne yep. The Rock Johnson, Tom Hanks, Brad Pitt, Denzel Washington, Julia Roberts, Will Smith, Leonardo DiCaprio, Johnny Depp, Kevin Hart, Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock, Ryan Reynolds, Adam Sandler, Harrison Ford, George Clooney, Robert Downey Jr., Angelina Jolie, Morgan Freeman, Chris Hemsworth. Right. So, like, here's my point. I don't think there's I, one star on there. I would see it just because they're in it. I like Ryan Reynolds. He's, he would be my most likely. I like Ryan Reynolds, but have you watched uh, Wrexham? I have not because I don't really care about oh soccer. Oh, my God. But, but it's fucking loved, terrible. Love both Deadpools. Uh, I like that yeah, video game He seems game to be a great guy. But, but, all right, but he, here's the point that I'm trying to make, which is the studios are public companies that are owned by public companies and they're worried that they have a dying business model. Streaming certainly sort of suggests some of that. And as a result, they're just trying to pick the biggest winners they can every single cycle. And so they're taking picking the lowest hanging fruit at all times. And so a Top Gun remake 35 years later, I, I, I hated the first one, so I didn't bother to watch the second one. But You I didn't watch it? No. As a moviegoer? I didn't like the first one. So why would I watch the second one? I like the way these hard drawn lines for you. Like like it's it was basically the biggest movie of the last five why years. Why do I owe my time to anyone else's conventional wisdom? No, I I I'm, I'm, I applaud you for it. I just mean that like I actually I, it's funny. It's the only one like I would never see Ant Man in a million years. It was terrible. Um, so so there's, <laughs> in fact, Lyle and I this was a radical. Also, you would go to a movie because your children wanted to. Sure. Right. Um, so, so they didn't want to go. Yeah, Lyle and I, we were watching. We so went to see John Wick on um, Saturday. The new Guardians of the Galaxy um, coming attraction was there, and I said maybe we won't see that. And he was a little surprised, and I was like, "Well, the last like five Marvel movies we've seen are all fucking terrible." And by the way, the reviews were terrible. We knew that, and we just kept going anyway. <laughs> Let's at least see what they say <laughs> before we buy tickets for this one. Um, but here's the point. They're, they're worried about quarterly earnings and analysts' opinions and things like that. And so the CEOs and the people at the studios who pull the strings and make the decisions are just trying to do the most reliable thing they can. But that means just doubling down on these people who are septuagenarians and octogenarians. And at the end of the day, um, that's ultimately a dying approach, right? That's because those people are literally going to die off. Um, and then once, you, if, if you're not promoting your Michael B. Jordans of the world or Jonathan Taylor, to speak of two people who were in Creed, who were excellent, right? Um, you know, then, then I think you've got this problem where you're just hollowing out the bench completely. The old people die off. And then the demise of the movie system happens even faster. And so I think if you were a studio exec 
trying to think 10, 20 years ahead as opposed to one or two quarters ahead, you would look at this list and say, this is indicative of a much bigger systemic problem. I, I think you're absolutely right. I, it, it is interesting. So one of the things that, that Matt noted was like, you know, there are some younger stars, right? I mean, you certainly get, you know, he, he noted that there's no Zendaya on the list, no Jennifer Lawrence, no Timothy Chalamet, no Holland, um, Tom Holland. Um, yep. uh, no Michael B. Jordan. Yep. So those are all, you know, much younger, although I don't think, you know, I mean, Timothy Chalamet is, is, is fairly young in Zendaya, but the others are, you know, Probably over 40. 30. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, in any case... Um, Zendaya is really great, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Jennifer Lawrence is great. I think all yeah, of, yeah, they're I think all, all these, yeah, they're yeah. all great. Sure. I mean, by the way, I, Spider-Man, the Tom Holland Spider-Man is the best one. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so... Uh, it's just interesting that none of those people make the list. So part of it is like, what's wrong with Americans? Like what? Like how, Like who puts who? Who says Angelina Jolie or or Harrison Ford? Yeah, I don't recall Harrison the last time Ford. either of them were in a movie. But um, I know Angelina Jolie has. And yeah, I mean, but I think I think that's partly because our tastes are somewhat. Uh, impacted and influenced by what we're given and shown. And so there's just this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah, yeah, yeah. recurring, whatever you want to well, call these it. Are, I, I, think, I think you're right. It, they, these are who the, the film industry has doubled down on. So that's, yeah, that's double down on the old people and they're, they're undermining the young people. And then eventually you get to a point where, like, so Tom Cruise, right, number one on that list, the Top Gun was the biggest movie. I didn't see it, right? Yeah. The funny thing is, and obviously the sample of our children is is too small to really be worth taking all that seriously. But the the you don't think four kids in Manhattan are indicative of the rest of the world? <laughs> Not so much. But um, but I, I they would see a lot more movies, right? Uh, if if yeah. if every movie in the theater weren't Ant Man, I think like, like, I think they would because think about it. It's, it's for them, right? So our our kids are between the ages of fourteen and seventeen now, collectively. Um, and they have the freedom. I love them to go to the movies. It's like, great, go out, go with your friends, here's some money. Right, right. Like, it's kind of a perfect activity because it's still relatively safe and harmless. And we live in Manhattan. There's just still a lot of movie theaters around. And yet not that much appeals to them. Yeah, exactly. So, so it, and, and it, it does seem like a, uh, I mean, I don't know if low-hanging fruit is the right thing, but it seems like an opportunity that's being missed. Yeah. Um, Let's. We were going to talk longer about morning routines, but I'm just going to ask you one question, and I think this is, might be something that we return to. All right. But what would you consider your the most important aspect of your morning, like as a professional person, not necessarily as a parent? Um, Got Because that's right. kind so of a different I, uh, category. So here's. I'm just to quickly rip through because. So Hugo and I are in this sort of silent tug of war these days about the length of the Tuesday podcast. Hugo's always trying to make it shorter and I'm always trying to make it longer. Okay. Uh, Why yes, do you want to make it longer? The, well, just because I feel like the audience has a little more tolerance than you do for hearing what we have to say. I, well, hold on. Because I like the sound of my own voice. Let's start with that. <laughs> that is the first and foremost reason why I do this podcast. The second reason is, so yeah, it says 32.41 on the clock, but that was like five minutes of us chatting before we actually started recording. So it's like 27 minutes. I think there's 10 more minutes of, of, of elasticity in this podcast, personally. Okay, but we still have some other stuff after sleep. Yeah, I understand. I, I, just, I, I also like the idea of there being a kind of... Like if we if it becomes something that we talk about podcast to podcast, so yeah. So if you start with like if I, we try to isolate your uh -huh. answer rather than a long Got it. sort of drift Diatribe, through everything, yeah. yeah, we could just. All right. We well, could, he, here's what I'm going to do because I did prepare for this. Okay. Um, but I don't. I'm not going to say shit can all that. Like you can, you know. Right. Go ahead. Do what you want to do. He, here's your podcast. Let me just quickly go through. I have a fairly rigid morning routine of things that I like to try to do, and then I think. 
the reason why I want to go through them is some of them are clearly personal and some of them are okay. professional, okay. right? So without going into which yet, um, try to exercise five days a week. Now, that's not always first thing in the morning, um, but exercise. No, you now feel more comfortable going to the gym at 10 o'clock. We've right, correct. That. Yes. Um, I, in the last six months, have really learned how to meditate. I take a class every week with a wonderful instructor named Kim Brown, uh, and that has become really, really helpful to me. And that's every day? That's every day, seven days a week, 20 minutes each time. Um, I pray every day. Uh, I try to read th- at least three... Can praying th- and meditation not be combined? They're different things. I mean, they, I think they feed into each other. I've been praying for a long time, a, a daily, for about 15 years now, I think 16 years, since, since 2007, I started doing it. Uh, and I'm pretty good about it. I would say I probably do it like 360 days a year. Wow, you miss uh, five. Yeah, but but because for me, it's a connection to God, and that, that's important. Yeah, yeah. Um, Meditation's a little different, but yeah, they, they fit into each other. Um, I try to read the, the Times, now that, now that they're being nice to me again, I'm reading their newspaper again, uh, the Washington <laughs> Post uh, and the New York Post. And then I will do look at the Wall Street Journal and, and the Daily News um, as well. But So some combination of three to five newspapers. And by the way, there are days where I devour every article and I'm just curious about everything. And there are days where everything is boring to me and I'm just moving through them at, at light speed. Um, Take my meds and vitamins. Uh, I um, walk Sam. I read the post with Lyle. Make the kids breakfast. Um, I feel like I'm missing one or two things, but shower, all that shit. But like, but try to you know clean up the apartment before I go. Um, so of all of that, I mean, the only one that's probably truly professional is the newspaper reading because, you know, I was up at five today and started reading the papers. And as I'm reading them, I'm firing off emails to various people on the teams like, hey, what about this? Let's try this idea. You know, have you thought about that? Um, So that has value, right? Um, But overall, I mean, especially now where everything that we do is, it's not a cult of personality around me, hopefully, but but the way that I handle and react to things um, really determines our success, I would say, in a lot of ways across the board. And the more that I just feel calm and collected and secure and healthy, the better of a job I'm going to do running, you know, the fund and all these other companies and philanthropies and everything else. Um, and so the meditation, the prayer, the exercise really does go a very long way for me. That was well said. Thank you. Um, let's talk about recommendations sure. and, then, and then we can send everybody on their way. Yeah. So I'm, I'm you know, I have on. a recommendation too, by the way. So what's your recommendation? My recommendation is the magic show, the, the, um, uh, speakeasy magic show at the McKittrick hotel. My kids should go tell. <laughs> right. You, you mentioned that yesterday. Yes. Although you, you went for free, didn't you? Um, I was invited by someone there. I did go for free, and so, I don't actually know how so, much it costs. So, so this, is, this is like the epitome of influencer marketing. But, you but have it, a podcast, but it you're wasn't an influencer. It, but it wasn't an exchange. They gave you free tickets. No, no. no. It's, you were, they manipulated you. You think so? You, you, they were <laughs> subtle enough. I don't think they had any idea of a podcast. To, to give you these tickets, and then you went for free. You now feel an obligation to them, and now you're shilling for them. I, oh, my God. That's just the most cynical way of looking at it. Here's the thing. It was, I, I met this guy who runs the company that, that that puts on the show at, at, a, at a hockey game, at the, at the Rangers game. And he said, hey, would you like to check out the show? And I was like, yeah, sure, that'd be great. And I, I don't even like magic. 
Like, I didn't think I did. And then this show is, like, fantastic. But I don't know how much it costs. But and I, I would like to see it, despite all of that. Yeah. I, you, I think you would particularly I, like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like it. You, you would, because they have 14 magicians, and they come sit down and do the tricks at mm. your table. Although I might find it awkward. No, no, you, you, that. well, the good thing is you can definitely see it into the background. If you drink, this is a, probably a good time to have a drink or two first, right? There's, give, there's give a bar. A, can can you imagine loop, they, loop, they have a bar? Lubrication. Speakeasy yeah. magic. It's right. like a yeah, whole thing. Yeah, I think if I went in, of course, I don't drink, so that wouldn't really help me. But, but still, um, you could have a certain stimulants yeah, or whatever. Sure, you know, sure. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not just alcohol is not yeah, the only option, true. not even the only legal one. Um, so, uh, recommendations. I read a great novel called Confidence by a guy named Raphael Frumkin. I, I don't know if it's his first novel, but uh, it's about sort of a, a, a grifter uh, and his whole life story, and it's it's fascinating and really that fun sounds to really read. good. Is it, it is it contemporary setting? Yeah, it, okay. it, it just yeah, it's. Uh, it, it's not contem- it's contemporary-ish. It's not today per right. se. It's a little in the past, um, but yeah. So there's there's that. I also read Don Winslow's new book, City of Dreams, better than City on Fire. Um, I would still say that Wins- well, it wasn't City on Fire, right? What was his last City one? of something? Yeah. Um, it's a part of a trilogy. It's if you like Winslow, it's a good book. Um, it, it is at- City on Fire. As we have seen, you know why? Because there was that other book in yeah. the 90s, Hellenberg or whatever. That guy, did he ever write another book? It was like a guy who was Garth Hellenberg. He was supposed to be like the greatest, you know, new writer in That ever. wasn't the 90s. That was like... 2000s? Um, that, that was even, no, I think it was even 2010s by Garth, Garth Risk Hallberg. Yeah. And it was an okay book. 2015. And... and I don't know if he's produced anything since. Um, anyway, so... Uh, well, he only made $2 million for it, so it's like... Right. Maybe so he took some done. time off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, I'm going home. Um, so anyway, the Winslow book, if you like Winslow, you'll like it. I did devour it. Um, his expertise is in sort of drug cartels, right? And so everything he writes about that is fascinating. Um, and the reason why I'm a little skeptical... So this book is the second of, of a trilogy about the Providence mob... Um, and it sounds like he knows who he's talking about. I think he is from Providence, but he did do a book on the NYPD before that that was like a fucking parody. Like it could not have been worse or dumber. So it worries me a little bit that like on the one time he wrote about something that I knew myself reasonably well, um, I realized how bad it was and how inconsistent it was. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's true for the Providence stuff. I suspect he does know what he's talking about when it comes to the drug cartels. A few other things. One... Um, if you happen to have the means to do so, and I know this is like a super privileged thing to say, but Uh-oh. if the Knicks make the next round of the playoffs and they are up three games to one, I was there Friday night. There is nothing like a playoff game at the Garden. It is fucking amazing. Yeah. The energy, the intensity. It's the such noise. a rare occurrence, too. Like, you know, well, they haven't won a playoff series in uh, 10 years, right? right? It may, never come, may never come right. again in it, our It's a once a decade. It's like a comet. How will they screw up the team after this year? We don't know. They'll, but, but it'll be exciting to watch them do it. Um, so if they get to play Milwaukee or Miami in the next round, and should you have the ability to pay an obscene amount of money for a ticket, I would say it was Did we, you think that gif that Howard sent was weird? Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Howard's are my Gotham book prize co-founder Howard Wolfson and, and frequent uh, person we talk about on this podcast and guests on this podcast um, sent around. We were all kind of cavelling about how happy we were about the Knicks. It was you and me and Howard and Gary and Josh, something like that, yeah, so, yeah, some group right. like that. And um, Howard sent an emoji or a gif, <laughs> and it was like, it was meant to show his love for the Knicks, but it was- Josh Hart in particular. Yeah, Josh Hart. It was, it was a little strange. Yeah. I mean- I, well, I, I, I just like that Howard's in a good mood about it, so I guess we should just accept that and not not um, not be critical in any way. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know. So anyway, uh, recommendations, uh, if you were one of the uh, ridiculously privileged few who through all kinds of inequality has managed to obtain enough money to buy a Knicks ticket on StubHub for the playoffs, I would recommend you do so. Okay, so check out the mobile voting white paper that's yep. on the mobile voting website. That we talked about at the top. And check uh, out the Gotham, article book on Prize. Gotham Book Prize. Yeah, please check out those two books, uh, Sewing Girl's Tale and Stories from Tennis Downstairs. And uh, I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.